Today, two sides of the human coin. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Uh, This uh, episode is distinct. It's different than all the other episodes I've done because it it amounts to an addendum. Uh, I would have included this in the previous episode, uh, which was about the 139th Psalm. That's what we covered. And so I will refer to that one time today, but I'm not actually extending uh, the message about Psalm 139 today, but instead uh, sort of uh, extending on a topic that was in my mind about it that I wanted to include every time I talked about that psalm, which I did three different times uh, in a chapel, in a church service, and uh, here uh, for an episode. Uh, but I never, I never did have an opportunity to get around to it. And it, I think it is, it is a pertinent idea, and it's a, it's a very significant concept. Uh, that we need to have in mind about the value that we have as human beings. And part of the trick of it is in the distinction between being human and being a human. Uh, and that's, that's important. The, the two ideas are important and they're different. Uh, being human, having a human nature, uh, having the characteristics that all human beings have. Uh, means that we're not distinct. We belong to this whole population. There are billions of us on the planet, and there have been billions of us at other times in history and so on. And yet on the other side, I'm experiencing things as me, not everybody else. Uh, And all the things I experience are unique to me in some way. And so there's a difference between being human and being a human. You know that. It's obvious. But that difference also plays a role in how we understand the value that we have as human beings. And if I were to go back, and I could have made this an addendum to a number of different episodes we have, but if I were to go back in talking about us as individuals in, you know, in one sense, and as part of a community, so that we're individualists and communitarian in our way of thinking, Uh, This would be a perfect addendum for that as well. But it it would be an addendum because in this case, what I want to talk about or or what I want to sort of rummage around in and, uh, and, and discuss is the value that we have for both of those reasons. Not one in contest with the other. One is in contrast with the others. They are different. That's the point. But they aren't in contrast competition with each other for the for the value that we have, they actually inform the distinct reasons why we have supreme value in the creation. And I mean that in the sense of more value than anything else, but not in the sense of that even being competitive. I mean, I know it sounds that because I said more, 
but I don't mean it that way. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more important than all of the rest of creation. And yet there is something of value in me that makes me distinct from the rest of creation, both because I'm human and because I am this particular human. So what I want to do is just kind of look at both sides of that and uh, end with a couple of thoughts about how those not only uh, stand as stark, starkly distinct from each other, but also how they kind of do coalesce into a conclusion that we ought to have about the value uh, of our lives. So first of all, on the being human side, let me explain what I mean. Uh, it would have to do with the generic purpose that we have as human beings. And uh, by the way, another episode that this could have served as, uh, for, for which this could have served as an addendum, uh, is the one where we talked about the difference between price and dignity. Uh, the price that we put on objects that we can replace, and then the dignity that goes with being a person, with being a human being, because uh, individual human beings matter distinctly. That also uh, is pertinent to the conversation we're having today. And so what I would put with the characteristic of being human, though, is the value that comes from simply being human, not because you are you, not because you have your hair or your complexion or your ideas or your experiences or any of the uniqueness that, that is yours, but just because you're a human being, just because you emerged as a human being with the number of chromosomes that we have and all of that type of stuff. What, you know, so wh what is that value? And it has to do with this generic idea about us, this generic truth about us. And, and before I get to that, let me just explain what I mean by a generic purpose. And it's odd that this is true about humans, but it is true about us as humans, just as humans, not as particular humans, not as you or, or, or me, as you or I, but as just you know, part of humanity. The generic purpose of something is, I mean, by its definition, it's generic, it's replaceable. It could be something else. Uh, so, for instance, trees have a generic value. Uh, and, I, I mean, I could I actually want to say this about real trees. You're out in the woods and you have a tree. Uh, you know, trees grow old, die, and they fall down. Sometimes they get chopped down because you need to make, you know, use them for firewood or make a house or whatever. And so a tree goes away. You plant another one in its place and you get another tree. And it's not exactly like the former tree, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, it still is a, it's you know, still able to do whatever it was going to do, cast shade or drop nuts or provide fruit or whatever was going on with the other one. So trees are replaceable. If I have an apple in my refrigerator and I really want to eat the apple and I drop the apple and immediately my dog licks it or bites it or whatever it does, then I'm not going to eat the apple. Other people, fine, pick it up, wash it off, get the dog spit off of it, do whatever you do, but I'm not eating it. I'm done with that apple. It's going in the trash or it's going in the ground or it's going to the backyard chopped up so my dog can finish eating it. I don't care, whatever. I'm not liking a big competition with my dog either, so I'm all right with that. All right, let's loosen up and move on. The point is I dropped the apple, I can't eat it. I'm not really troubled about that. I'm going to go back to the refrigerator and get a different apple. I don't need that particular apple. 
apples are important, but they're they're not important because they're distinct. They're important because apples as a whole serve this great purpose of providing delicious, tasty food. Perfect afternoon food, by the way, for me. Uh, not for everybody, I know, but for me, it works out great. Okay, second. So a, a dog is the same way, and this is weird, and some people are going to be offended by this, but I'm just saying, and people really get offended about their pets. I love my pet. I walk my dog twice a day when my wife's gone and once a day when she's here most of the time. Sometimes she does all the walking, but I do what I can. Anyway, the point is, love my dog. I take care of my dog. I care about my dog. So don't you don't have to send me a bunch of email about this, all right? But look, dogs are replaceable. I'm not saying that you don't love the particular dog that you have. You do. But I mean, come on. Sometimes you can't tell one, you know, what a golden retriever from another. And that's a particular one that's obvious. But I know, I know some are blonde and some are not, and some are bouncy and springy and some are not, but a lot are, right? I mean, uh, there are, and when, how many people, look, I know, I'm, I feel like you're getting defensive with me. And so I just want to, I just want to pause for a second and say, you're, so how many people have you known? And I, again, I care about these dogs. How many people have you known who had a particular breed of dog and it died and they got another one? They got another one just like it. And if they were my uncle, they named it the same thing every time they got a new dog. And I mean, I thought a dog lived like 50 years because of that until I realized what was going on. And then, and then it's like, uh, that's weird, but not really. I mean, I couldn't tell the dogs apart. His were Boston Terriers, by the way. And they were great dogs. It was, it was a great dog for him anyway. Okay, you get the point. They're replaceable. The weird thing about this is, I'm saying all of that, not, not to make a distinction about human beings. Human beings are not replaceable. We're not, but that's a different point. That's not, that's not here yet. That's the other half of what we want to talk about. Right now, I need to make the point that in this way, you know, every human being fits this category. When I perish from the earth, which I find inconceivable, but presumably at some point, you know, things will stop. And so when I perish from the earth, the image of God will not have ceased from being on the earth. It is born by every other human being in the world just as effectively as it's born by me. And I'm talking after the fall in this world, human beings bear the image of God, and that's what makes us of inestimable value in this creation. And yet it is a generic truth about every single human being. I can't say to another person, I'm more important than you. I have the image of God. That would miss the whole point of all of us having the image of God. This is what's going on, this concept of the value of human beings being wrapped up in the fact that every human being bears the image of God in Genesis 9. So we hear about this. We know that this is true from the creation itself, but by the time we get down to Genesis 9 in the early parts of Scripture and during the, you know, the account of what's going on after the flood, uh, in Genesis 9, God blesses Noah and his sons, tells them to be fruitful and multiply, talks about how they're going to have superiority over the animals and so on. And he says this, 
For, for your lifeblood, I will require, God says, a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it, and from man. So the animals better not kill you. I'll hold them accountable for that. But I'm also going to hold men accountable if they kill you. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man, meaning other people are going to have to enforce this rule among themselves if somebody takes your life. Whoever sheds, this is the quotation, in uh, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. I'm not making an argument for against capital punishment here, but this is capital punishment. Why would you exercise capital punishment? Why on earth would you say human life is so valuable that we're going to take it? For this reason, this is what he says, whoever sheds the man of blood, uh, whoever sheds the blood of man <laughs> by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. The, the point of it is to say that when, when a human being is murdered, the only conceivable compensation for that would be for the murderer to give up his life because there is nothing of equivalent value to a human life except the other human life. And that's the point, that the other human life is equivalent in value to it. Now, regardless of what you think about the, about the rationale for capital punishment and all that kind of stuff, which is not what I want to get into today at all, the basis of this kind of retributive justice, of this equitable payment for the things that have been done, the, the whole basis for that is the idea that every single human life is of the same value because we all bear the image of God. The whole idea of justice in the Old Testament is premised on this equality of the value of every human life. So that when we talk about love in Scripture, which is the fulfillment of the law, right? I mean, this is the whole point. What's the great commandment? It's love. Love God, love people. There's not anything else that you're supposed to love like that. It's just loving God and loving people. So when you say, what's the interpretation of the law? It's love. And what on earth are we supposed to understand about what love means? The whole point of love in the Old Testament is that we regard others as being of equal value to ourselves, that we look at ourselves and we say, my neighbor is just as important to me. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That we look at a stranger and we say, a stranger, an outsider is just as important to me as my neighbor, you will love the stranger who dwells among you as one who was born among you. This is the idea I'm quoting from Leviticus 19 when I say those things, but that's what Jesus brings forward into the answer to the question, what's the great commandment? And it's what the golden rule is all about, that the judgments we're making about others are identical to the judgments we make about ourselves. We're neither lesser nor greater because we are also human beings bearing the image of God. He's our Lord, so we recognize that all of us are to be regarded with that same value. This is the value to the rule of law in constitutional societies like ours. It can be played out in other ways. I'm not saying that uh, the understanding of equality in Leviticus 19 is finally realized when America comes into existence with our Constitution. I'm not saying that. But the basis of our understanding of the rule of law, even going back to the Magna Carta, the whole basis of that is that everybody has to be under the same rule because everybody's on an equal footing in this world. 
And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, in the Christian tradition, we understand that's because we bear the image of God universally, generically. So all human beings have this same value. And therefore, it is of inestimable value to the world. There is nothing else quite like us. Okay, all that said, and man, I just, you know, I want to go on and on there because it would be fun to talk about what that means in terms of why we're so offended by Darwin's origin of species or the descent of man or ascent of man, as he, uh, that's his book title, I think. Uh, you know, why we're so offended by that? Because we feel like, as believers, that it insults the distinctiveness of humanity or something like that. But we don't have to fear those things. We don't have to worry about those things. The reality is, if we would just recognize the value of every other human being being equal with us, then none of those other matters would be that important. I'm not saying that they wouldn't be worth arguing or debating or anything like that, but none of them would rise to the level of us acknowledging that all of us are of the same worth before God because we all bear the image of God. That's the answer to arguments about diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging. It's the reality that we all bear the image of God. When we look at other people and we disdain them, when we look at other people and we belittle them, when we distance ourselves from them or act as if they deserve what we don't in any of those things, we are misunderstanding the universal, generic value of being human. Not a human, just being human human. You have incredible value simply because you're human. Okay, that's the, that's the top level side of, of what I wanted to talk about. What's the bottom side? I said two sides of the human coin. There's a, you know, a, I mean, you can, I don't care if it's top and bottom, left side, right side, whatever, the other side of the coin, being a human. And this one is a, a little trickier for us because the, the way we think of it is so uh, ensconced in our individualism, in our enlightenment way of thinking, meaning post-17th century way of thinking, that we only conceive of it in those terms. But I don't think it has to be limited to that. In fact, I'm confident that it doesn't need to be limited to that. So I don't want to go down that road. I'm not going to try to go to Descartes and I think therefore I am and human consciousness and privacy and privilege and all of the things that go with human consciousness to say we're all distinct and that's where our existence is. And I mean, basically, it just flows down a road until you end up at existentialism and isolation and despair and loneliness and death is the only way out and so on. I'm, I'm not going down any of that road, and I'm not trying to find a place to stop on that road because I think there is a dignity and irreplaceability to human beings that attends the fact that we're all made as different human beings. Yeah, yes, we're all given the image of God, and we're part of the human race. We're part of the human species, but, I mean, the point is that being human also entails being a distinct human, a, 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 being a human. And therefore, for instance, uh, you know, in examples that follow the example of what we were talking about above, you know, you, you, <laughs> I, I, I mean, we would consider someone pathological if they did do this. You don't replace a human being who dies with another human being to be that one. So if a spouse dies, if you're a widow or a widower, you don't marry someone and then they just become that person again. 
Uh, let me let me get you into all of their old clothes. I mean, if somebody starts doing that, we say, hmm, let's go, let's go see a counselor, right? I mean, let's go see a therapist. Because I get why somebody would want to do that. You feel lonely, you kind of lose your way, and you and so on. But we don't do that. We acknowledge the grief of having lost a loved one. You don't replace a lost child with another child. You have another child, and you love the new child, and you still acknowledge the loss of the former child. And it doesn't make the pain of that loss go away. It just makes you different because now you're relating to someone else as well. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why Job's ending is so challenging in some ways, right? Uh, We'd like to think of it as a book that just resolves everything by saying, oh, and God made everything right with Job uh, in the end, right? So Job is losing everything at the beginning of the book, including his children. So he loses all of his possessions and honor and respect and so on, but he also loses all of his children. And in lose, I mean, this is a this is a different category of loss. And in the end, if you remember the book, after Job has prayed for his friends and they've been restored and so on, it describes how blessed he is. And I, you know, this this is how it says it: the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he gave him, and and it numbers all the things that he gave him, twice as much as he had before. It says he had 14,000 sheep instead of 7,000, 6,000 camels instead of 3,000, 1,000 yoke of oxen instead of 500,000 female donkeys and so on. But he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the one and the name of the other and so on. There was nobody as beautiful and Job lived and so on and he's blessed. And in all of that, what what the Lord is doing is giving him twice as much as he had before. Those are the words that are used in Job 42. Gave him twice as much as he had before. The thing is, he had seven sons and three daughters in chapter one. That's what he had. That's who died. And so, you know, I'm reading it at first and it's like, that's, you know, that's not exactly equal pay, right? I mean, hey, Job, your sons and daughters died in chapter one, but as it turns out, I was just holding them in storage, and I'm giving them back to you in chapter 42. Oh, I'm so glad you're back. I mean, I know you were asleep for a while, but you're back, and there's a resurrection or something like that. That's one thing. But for him just to give him more children and say, oh, it's okay because I've replaced your children would be another thing. But you see, that's part of what makes Job likely distinct in this recognition because he does give him literally twice as many animals as he had before, not just to replace the animals. He gives him twice as many, but with his kids, he gives him the same number. He gives him seven sons again and three daughters again. And he says, that's twice as many, meaning these aren't replacing your former children. That loss is still just as real as it was before. But there is also the blessing that now you have these seven sons and these three daughters that are yours. And so you you get the idea of what I'm pointing out in the book of Job. I mean, it's, and, and again, on the other side of this, I want to say this before I get very far into it, because so what we would be inclined to do is just say, oh, God calls all of us to a unique role, and then go to any passage in scripture where it talks about someone having a unique role and apply that to us. But I There's a caution to apply here. I don't think it's wrong, by the way. I actually think this is not a wrong thing to do, but I think it's risky, and I want us to be aware of the risk when we're doing it, and I mean hermeneutically risky. Like, you know, it's a 
it's a challenge to say that this is the right way to use some of these passages. So, for, for example, if we look at God saying to Paul in the book of Acts, you, you are a chosen vessel to me to go to the Gentiles and so on. And then we say, see, God calls individuals to individual things. Well, Paul is pretty unique. I mean, he's distinctive in the history of Christianity. And I'm not going to pretend that in some way I'm doing something that Paul himself does. But that's part of the point. We need to ask the question, can that kind of understanding of how God separates us and uses us be extrapolated to someone else? Could we say, well, I wonder what I wonder what kind of vessel I am to God. I am to God. I wonder what he wants to do with me, you know, in the same way he did something unique with Paul. And I will have, so I'm, I'm saying here, there's a reason to question that. Just like in Jeremiah 1, there's a reason to say, well, he may have separated Jeremiah in the womb. That doesn't mean he does it to everyone in the womb. At the same time, I, I think there's good argument to say he does. And part of that's from the psalm that we covered last time in Psalm 139, which I'll come back to in a few minutes. But, but my point here is to defend why I think it probably is okay not to extrapolate that specific claim. I mean, that would, misun- that would be misinterpreting the whole point. He sets apart Paul for a unique cause. He sets apart Jeremiah for a unique cause, sets apart Isaiah for a unique cause. But the fact, and this is how it seems to me, the fact that he can set apart the most distinctive one, you know, the chosen one, Jesus, right? The, the Messiah, he's the anointed one. The fact that he can set apart the Messiah for his unique calling and then tell us that we are him in this world, that we are to be little Christ, that, that, that God doesn't retract from the name Christian, that we're little Christs, that we are we're called to be messianic, which means he has a role for us to play where he uses us redemptively in the lives of others in, in the same way that he set apart Christ. Now, now, let me explain. I know, believe me, I know at this point that you could say, well, I know, but that's like, a, that's like a universal calling. Every Christian is to be a little Christ. Yeah, but every Christian in a different setting, every Christian in a different way, every believer, because they have different gifts and experience and calling, as I'll talk about in just a moment. And, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, at this point, it's not like we can go to the scriptures and there is an enlightenment epistle. Uh, let me write this epistle to, you know, uh, Charlemagne. And so we have the letter to Charlemagne. There's a, that, Charlemagne's too early for the enlightenment, I know, but I'm just choosing some later name. Does that I mean it would be absurd? We don't, we don't have that. And the scriptures weren't written in a post-enlightenment environment. They were written to a, a culture that didn't have that perspective. So when we're reading them, I'm not saying we should read something into it. I'm saying we shouldn't expect to find language about a, a, a circular globe, a spherical globe, and we shouldn't expect to find language about radical individualism. But what we can find is evidence, and not just evidence, direct statements that indicate God really does expect individuals to have an individual purpose within his calling. 
So, I mean, and one of the first examples that came to mind in my own life as I was learning scripture and growing up and reading it over and over again was the demoniac at Gadara. If I remember correctly, that's who falls down at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. He wants to become a follower. And Jesus says to him, no, 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 I need you to stay here. I need you to stay with your people, you know? Uh, you represent me to them. Uh, that's a unique calling. And I think all of that flows out of, and this is why I said I was sort of doing this as an addendum to the discussion of Psalm 139, because that's where it emerged for most recently, and I thought it just finally needed to be said. That's why, in, you know, in Psalm 139, when he's speaking about how he created us, formed us uh, in the womb, the language that he uses of the golem, you know, your eyes saw my unformed substance, the, the language that he's using there is, there, there's the generic part of us, you know, just the, the substance from which we are formed. But then when he gets more specific about it, his language isn't just, you know, and then you formed the particular parts of my body. You know, you made my, my fingers, and I was a little double-jointed here, and I thought that was unique, and I appreciate that. It's not that uh, kind of uniqueness. The uniqueness is this. Your eyes saw my golem, the part of me that's just unformed. It's just the substance from which you make everyone. But in your book were written every single one of them, the days that were formed for me, before any of them was formed yet. And your thoughts toward me are precious because of that. And, and all of that language, and this is all built into, you can go back and listen to the episode on, on Psalm 139, the previous episode, if you want to hear a part of that discussion. I didn't really dwell on it there either, but I mentioned it. It's part of the point that in, uh, in Scripture, the soul and the purpose are inextricable from each other. The idea of the soul is the idea of a purpose. And so when a man uh, chooses the entire world and he gives his soul in exchange so that he can have the entire world, what he's giving up is his own soul. So you pursue, you know, when you're going for the entire world, the language is meant to say you're pursuing the wrong end. You're doing the wrong thing. You're chasing the wrong goal. You're pursuing money, for instance, mammon, as he says in Matthew. And this I'm referring to, by the way, also comes from Matthew in Matthew 16, verse 26. When he says it in the book of Matthew, the whole idea is that if you were to gain the whole world, but in the process lose your soul, what possible profit is there in that? Even the language of saying what possible profit is there in doing that is saying you went for the wrong purpose. You got off the path that I created you. You walked away from the days that I had designed you for. That design idea is what I'm getting at. And I know we like, we, like, we like Psalm 139 for the generic aspect of it. We like the aspect that he formed humanity in the womb. And we like to think of the inward parts as the intricate details of our bowels and our blood vessels and our, you know, all that. I know I should have said viscera, but whatever, you get the idea. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I don't think that has to be, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to detract from those who use the psalm that way. I am trying to attract us to what I think it's actually saying, which is that while he was forming this substance that just makes us a human, 
in the womb, he was also forming the thing that makes us a unique, intended, purposeful soul in that womb. And that's why our days are numbered. They're not, they're not numbered because God has said, well, I think I'm just going to take your life on May 5th, 1940, whatever. It's not that, and I know that's not normally God's voice, but I was saying what God doesn't say. That's why I was saying. Anyway, the point is, I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's untrue. He does know exactly when we're going to perish before we ever begin to exist. Of course he does. He knows everything, including the future. I have no problem with that whatsoever. That's not my point. My point is that in this psalm, he's not saying, and God knows when all that's going to happen, or he just happens to be able to see all the things that are going to happen to you when you filled it out on the calendar, weren't able to make the appointment, you missed it, and you dropped your keys, and it went in the corner, and God knew it. It's not that either, even though obviously that's true. It's not a problem. The point is, he knows the path that he has laid out for you day by day, all the way to the end of your journey. He laid it out for you. And David's prayer at the end is intended to say, am I wandering off your path? Am I? Search me out. See if there's any grievous, any fallen, any painful path, any, any way in me that's not what you had laid out for me. It's not saying we can thwart God's purposes or something like that, but it is saying we're supposed to say to ourselves, God has a unique purpose laid out for me. He knows all those days. He gave it to me when he was creating me as human, but making me as this human, the one who is going to fulfill this purpose in his creation. And so where I was, you know, where, where I would speak of human value generically in terms of law and love and justice, those ideas, that in the concept of justice, you have a law that's applied universally to everyone, and you have love that's supposed to be given to everyone. That's, the, that's what makes things just, righteous, when we are expressing our law equally, without uneven balances, and our love universally, given to not just ourselves, but to our neighbors and the strangers who dwell among us, right? So justice and law and love, those are the generic characteristics that go with being human. Being a human is made valuable by our calling, not I'm supposed to be righteous, but I actually have something God has given me to do that he expects me to do personally. And so I have a calling. Now, obviously, as a human, as human beings, we're all called to be righteous. But I mean, there's something that sets me apart in two ways. And I'm not saying every person hears a call. I think that's what people think of. And because of the language of it, I think that's what's built into it for us to think of it that way. I don't mean you have to have had a, a moment. I mean, when I was 13 years old, and then again, when I was 16, I, I believe God called me to ministry, to preach. And, and so that's what I committed my life to. And I still believe that. And I'm still committed to it. My, 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 that's, my point isn't that everybody has to experience that. My point is that in the same way, I think justice is obtained generically when we have a law that's applied equally to everyone and when we love everyone equally, uh, that we love the stranger and we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In that same exact way, I would say our calling is fulfilled when we recognize 
the gifts that God has given us and the experience that God gives us uniquely. So instead of the rule of law, I think you have gifts. And I think instead of just love being the commandment, you have experience. And those things come together to give you a calling, a specific purpose. And there are a lot of ways I think that's played out in Scripture generically, but but understand my point here. Some people are great at teaching, and some people are terrible at it. And if you're terrible at teaching, it can be, and let's just be, I mean, I'm just going to be honest here. Sometimes it's torturous for the people who are listening, right? And I don't, I'm not trying to put off anyone who's trying to become a good teacher. I know people who couldn't even get a whole sentence out when they were trying to teach, and now they're the pastor of a congregation that's flourishing, and the Lord is blessing their entire ministry. So I'm in favor of learning and growing, and I'm not talking about talents. I'm just talking about how God blesses us sometimes with the ability to do things and then puts us in an environment where we can do it so that he can fulfill his purposes for a whole body or for uh, whatever whatever it is that's going on. So here's my point. When you recognize your gifting, it's different for different people. And, we, and, and by the way, that can include talents, but I would put that down in the category of experience here in just a moment. But in the category of gifting, just the fact that he surrounds you with a certain group of people who have a certain kind of need, and then you find out you're able to fill that need, that would be your gift. Not because it's the best thing you do, not because it's your favorite thing to do, but because it's what they need and it's something you can do. And nobody else seems to be filling it. So lo and behold, God has given you to them as a gift to them so that the things he's given you as gifts can fulfill his purpose for you in their lives. That kind of gift is what I'm talking about. That's unique for you, partially because the people you're around and partially because your abilities are just distinctive from everyone else's abilities. And so that gifting makes you unique, and then your experience makes you unique. And I mean by that, how you're raised and the family experiences you had, the good ones and the bad ones. Uh, uh, we were talking, and I say we, I mean, uh, you know, my producer, Daisy. She works with me, and she's the executive coordinator in the president's office. And we were talking about this, and in some people's lives, horrible experiences they've had, and I mean abusive experiences they've had even, can be a part, not, I'm not saying those experiences are good, they're horrible, and they should not have happened. But they can become a part in, in a, this redemptive fashion that God has of making terrible things into something purposeful, they can become a part of making us a person that can serve others in a way we couldn't have served them. You know, we comfort others with the comfort wherewith we ourselves were comforted from 2 Corinthians, right? So the whole idea is that he uses our unique experiences, some terrible, some glorious. You know, a, a person who has a great father, a perfect father, has an ability to orate about the glories of having a heavenly father like someone who never knew a really good father can't. And someone who had a terrible father can speak freely about the benefit of finally having a father in heaven that they can refer to in a way that someone who had a, a perfect father on earth can't. You know, we have unique experiences that shape us to be able to serve other people and to live because, I mean, you know, as human beings, all the other human beings around us matter. But as this human being, I can serve them in a way that's different 
than the way everyone else serves them. And I, I find that commendable. And, and by the way, this may sound elitist, but I don't, I don't mean it as an affirmation of any kind of elitism at all. But I think it's a, an appropriate affirmation here. I heard someone saying to their children not too long ago, uh, you're, not, you're not consumers. You are creators. We're not going to spend our lives being consumers. You're going to grow up to be a creator. And they didn't mean by that that they couldn't, you know, watch a, a television show or read a book or, you know, whatever. Be um, Literally, we're all consumers in some ways. And they knew that. Their point was to say, we're not just going to be about allowing other people to define our lives. We're going to be about creating content so other people can be improved by the things we provide to the world. And I thought that was a pretty powerful expression of this reality that God hasn't made us simply to absorb things from other people. We're not just so much cattle out on the pasture, and it doesn't matter which one we are. It's not like that. If, if, if we exist on the basis of our faith, if we exist, it's for a specific purpose that God gave us and for which he caused us to exist. And I mean specific like just you. And again, I mentioned before, if, if we perish, if I perish, the image of God does not, you know, just doesn't. But if I perish, the particular purpose that I had does perish with me. That, it's just part of the nature of how God creates us. And it's part of the reason death is still tragic. And you can say, death's not tragic, I'm going to heaven. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm raised in the resurrection. You are. The resurrection is real. I, am, I believe in the resurrection. And it does not change the fact that 1 Corinthians, after the rise of Christ, still says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. But it will be destroyed. I think it's, by the way, one of the reasons that in Acts 3, for instance, at the end of, of Acts 3, when Peter's preaching his sermon, the second uh, kerygma that shows up in the book of Acts, that he ends it by saying that God sent his son for each and every one of you as he points to the people who are in the crowd. I'm saying he points to them, you know, I'm visualizing him preaching that sermon. Or in Psalm 116, one of my favorite psalms, why he uses that phrase, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Each person who perishes, each of God's children who perishes is important to him, and it mattered to him that that person faced death. That's what that whole psalm is about, and not just about David, not just about the Messiah. It's about David saying, and this is something I want to proclaim to all of God's people, that you would understand the value that you have. And so let me, let me close with this. The unique, this is the point, that on, on one side, we've got this unique dignity of each human being. And on the other side, we have this image of God in every human being, in all of humanity. And so I'm saying all people, all people everywhere have the same value for the same reason that every single person among us is different. Another way to say that is the one thing all people have in common, well, one of the things that all people have in common is that they are each and every one completely distinct. The, the fact that God creates humanity to bear his image means we have to regard and treat persons who show up in our lives the way we ought to regard and treat God were he to show up. That's the nature of the law. 
and the love that he gives us and the golden rule, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? The, the fact that God creates humanity to bear his image, this is what's happening with the angels who show up uh, with Hebrews 13, you know, so that we entertain strangers, that we are hospitable, because in doing so, some have entertained angels without being aware of it. He's reminding us that every stranger who shows up is representing the image of God, is carrying the image of God, and therefore we ought to respond the same way we would if God himself showed up. So on one side, it's the fact that God creates humanity to bear his image means we have to regard and treat persons who show up in our lives the way we ought to regard and treat God were he to show up, right? But this is where we close. The fact that God creates you for a purpose uniquely yours means, on one side, this is the point we made in Psalm 139, that you entrust to God anyone or anything that separates you from that purpose because it's God's purpose. He cares about the purpose that he gave you. But it also means this, that is, the fact that God creates you for a purpose uniquely yours also means that that you trust that God must still be using you since he hasn't changed from the day he created you and you're still here. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.